What does love mean to you? Has alcoholism turned your love to hate? Or maybe you feel both at once and it's tearing you apart. Welcome to episode 142 of The Recovery Show. We'll be talking about love. This episode was brought to you by Michelle and Roberta. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Michelle and Roberta, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. I want to start with a reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, You probably have heard this in one form or another. I found this contemporary English version that, that I like. What if I could speak all languages of humans and of angels? If I did not love others, I would be nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What if I could prophesy and understand all secrets and all knowledge? And what if I had faith that moved mountains? I would be nothing unless I loved others. What if I gave away all that I owned and let myself be burned alive? I would gain nothing unless I loved others. There's a a statement there of the importance of love. Uh, in our human relationships, and I think for ourselves as well, that if we are not capable of loving, we're maybe not capable of living life fully. And to turn that around, um, particularly those of us who have been in alcoholic relationships, when love dies for us, I think it impairs our ability to live it impair, it, as the as the uh, the reading says, I would be nothing. I certainly have have had that experience of of love dying, love turning to dislike or hate or a combination, which is crazy. Sometimes I love her, I hate her, and how that diminishes my ability to be myself how that diminishes my ability to act in all areas of my life. And, you know, that's one of the things that that recovery in Al-Anon has given me back, is the ability to to love, the ability to, to hold love even when maybe I don't like somebody that much, or maybe I don't like the way they're acting that much. And I think that's a concept that in the Al-Anon program we call Detachment with Love. And uh, I'll talk about that in a little bit. But this word love is a very confusing word uh, because there's there's lots of different kinds of love and they're expressed differently. And I think society really emphasizes just a couple of these ways of loving, in particular uh, romantic love or uh, sexual love, I guess is the way to put it. Uh, that's what most of popular culture, when it talks of love, it, it means that. Um, and uh, you may have heard it said that, that the Greek language has four different words 
for this concept that we name love. And these are first agape, which means love, especially brotherly love, charity, the love of God for man and of man for God. This term is is used in Christian religions to express the unconditional love of God for his children. Uh, Thomas Aquinas named this as to will the good of another. So this is a, a more impersonal, but I think also unconditional love that we maybe find in religion. Uh, I certainly have found it in this program in the way that that I love other people in the program in the sense of wishing well for them. The next word, and, and there's I'm, I'm looking at this article on Wikipedia, and I will make a link to that in the show notes at therecoveryshow.com slash 142. Eros means love mostly of sexual passion or intimate love. As I say, this is the one that we use mostly in when we talk about love in modern American society is Eros. And if you find love songs, uh, they're almost always about that kind of love. The third word, philia, means affectionate regard or friendship, usually between equals. Uh, It's a dispassionate, virtuous love, a concept developed by Aristotle. He expresses it variously as loyalty to friends, family, and community, and requires virtual equality and familiarity. This is the, the kind of love, I think, that leads us to maybe make donations to a charity to work in a, in a soup kitchen or otherwise help out people who um, are disadvantaged, who are, are in need. Um, this is general love for humanity. And finally, the fourth word here is storge, which means love or affection and especially of parents and children. It is common or natural empathy like that felt by parents for their offspring and is apparently rarely used. Those are all words that the ancient Greeks used to distinguish these different kinds of love where we have to talk of romantic love, eros, or parental love, which could be agape or storge, I guess, Um, filial love or familial love, the love for other members of our family. It's a little bit different than the way parents love children, I think. Um, and the way that we love our parents, the way that we love our siblings is feels different to me than the way I love my children. There's compassionate love. I feel compassion for somebody and that engenders a feeling of love for that person in me. And then we get to obsessive love. And that one is also... Um, let's say celebrated maybe uh, in popular song for sure. And can, can be, it's, it's the, the sort of love that for me can be problematic. Uh, it, it's not a healthy kind of love. I think when thoughts of one person fill our mind to the exclusion of maybe other people and wanting to spend all your time with somebody uh, is, is not the most healthy thing, but it is something that Certainly, I have felt at different times in my life, and it, it has led me to, to some dark places on occasion. And then we talk, uh, we talk in the program or we talk in our religion about unconditional love. It's usually phrased as the love that our higher power has for us, but sometimes also the, the love that a parent has for their child that doesn't depend on that child's behavior. It doesn't depend on the child reciprocating the love. And this is something that I think we strive for. 
um, in our recovery to find to find unconditional love, whether it's unconditional love for ourselves, you know, modeling the love that our higher power has for us in the way that we, we can love ourselves, because many of us, and I include myself, did not love ourselves when we came into recovery. I was not feeling very good about myself. And I think that even before even before things got really bad in, in the alcoholic relationship, I would treat myself in a way that I would never treat somebody I loved, calling myself stupid, beating myself up uh, emotionally for things that I had done, indicated, I think, really a lack of, of love for myself. Oh, man, somebody said, and, and I don't remember who now, and I heard this quote recently that we can't love others until we can love ourselves. In, in a sense, that's not true. Um, in the sense of, I can certainly feel romantic love or obsessive love for somebody else. I could feel love for my children. But I think that when we can love ourselves, we can love others much more fully. Being in, in love can compel us to actions that we might not otherwise take. I'm thinking particularly in a loving alcoholic relationship where my love for my loved one is the term I use, my loved one. Uh, my love for her caused me to want to, led me to want to save her, to protect her from harm. We learn in our recovery, we learn in Al-Anon that this behavior can be enabling. It can be, in particular, protecting somebody from the consequences of their actions is a, is a definition of enabling that I have heard and that I can use because I can look at what's my motive. Am I trying to, to protect somebody from being hurt because of something they did? Then I may be enabling them. And and loving somebody usually means that, that I don't want them to hurt. You know, I want them to be happy. I have to understand that sometimes loving somebody means that they do need to feel the pain of, of their decisions uh, so that they can be motivated to move out of the situation that is causing the pain. And whether that's a loved one who's an alcoholic or an addict, and if I keep protecting my loved one from hitting bottom, from having pain uh, from the alcoholism, then they're more likely to keep on drinking. If I always protect my children from pain as they're growing up, if I never allow them to get into a situation where they might be hurt, or if I always fix things for them, when they grow up and leave leave home as adults, they won't have the ability to weather adversity on their own. They won't have the ability to find their own solution to problems that they may have. If I truly love them, I need to I need to let them grow up. I need to let them be their own independent people. And certainly when they're very young, they, they don't have the capability to necessarily see and understand consequences. In that situation, I definitely have needed to protect them. But when my love for an adult moves me, compels me to protect them, I'm, I'm generally not doing them a favor. 
And I'm not doing myself a favor either in the long run. If my enabling of, of my loved one's drinking prolonged the period of her drinking, then I was not only hurting her, I was hurting myself. So when we find ourselves in a situation where somebody is acting in a way, somebody we love is acting in a way that we feel is doing them harm, they're acting in a way that has consequences for us that makes us unhappy, what happens to our love? We find ourselves, I found myself, let me speak in the first person here, I found myself being angry with her, I found myself frustrated. I found myself not wanting to be around her when she was drinking. And at the same time, you know, that, that love, that familial love at least, that was there at the beginning and that, that had developed over the years we were together, was still there, you know, and, and I loved her and I hated her. When I came to the program, I was really angry. I was angry and frustrated and in despair that I couldn't fix it. There was fear that her drinking was going to continue to get worse and that she could die. When I can't express that fear, when I couldn't express that fear, that fear turned to anger and to, and to hate that you know, her actions were making me feel bad. How about that, huh? So there's this mix of, of love and wanting her to get better and, and at the same time not wanting to be around her because I, I couldn't tolerate the way she acted when she was drunk. And so I came into the Al-Anon program of recovery and I learned, I learned things. The first thing that I learned was let go, that it was not my job to fix her alcoholism. And further, that I couldn't, and that part of the reason that I was so angry, that I was so frustrated, that I was so despairing and fearful was that I was trying to fix something that I couldn't fix. And I needed to let her follow her own process and hope that she would find her own recovery. My love needed to let go. Uh, my obsession with trying to fix the person that I loved so that she would be the person that I loved needed to, to let go. And I heard this concept of detachment with love, and I had no clue how that was going to work. I had no clue how to do that. Um, you know, I thought maybe, I mean, detachment, like cutting myself off, is that what that means? But I can't, I don't want to cut myself off. I mean, this is a person that I do love, that I do want to spend my life with, just not with her drinking. What is this detachment with love thing? It took me a long time. It took me reading, listening, to start to get an inkling of what it was about. And there's, there's a story um, in one of our readers, and I can never remember exactly where it is, that illustrates three different kinds of detachment in the way that I act because the the alcoholic is acting the same way in all three uh, in all three of them and the the setup is the alcoholic comes home from a night of drinking and collapses on the lawn i can detach in three different ways from that situation 
the non-detached action is to try to get them off the lawn and into the house and into bed, maybe by screaming at them, yelling at them to wake up and get the F in the house, Uh, maybe trying to do something physically, pick them up and drag them in. I don't know. Got to fix it. My, my loved one can't be sleeping on the lawn. It just is not possible. And, and I need to fix it for them. That's the non-detached reaction that's coming out of the combination of love and anger and fear. The first form of detachment is detachment with anger, or as I like to refer to it, middle finger detachment. In that scenario, I leave them asleep on the lawn. I turn on the sprinklers and I go to bed because that will teach them. That will learn them to, to come home and fall asleep on the lawn. Ha. The, uh, the second form is uh, sort of neutral detachment in which I just go inside and go to bed. I'm, I'm no longer trying to teach them the consequences of their action. I'm no longer reacting out of anger. But I'm not doing anything about it either. Um, I'm not showing any love. I'm just going to bed. I'm taking care of myself, which, you know, we learned that in the program. And the third is loving detachment, detachment with love, where I go inside, I get a blanket, I bring it out, I spread it over them, and then I go to bed. And you notice that the the beginning is the same for all three scenarios. The ending is the same for all three scenarios, which is I go to bed, and because I have detached myself from needing to fix them, I'm able to sleep. But in the third scenario, I act out of love, and I do... I do something to show my love, to do for them what they can't do for themselves. Apparently they can't, they can't come in and get a, get a blanket. And maybe there's some protection from consequences. Maybe that could be slightly enabling, but it shows the love without trying to fix it. That was helpful to me. Detachment with love means that I can show my love. I can, I can do things that, that show my love without trying to fix the situation that my loved one is in. Another thing that I came to learn about detachment with love is when I was able to really see my loved one as a person with a disease, the disease of alcoholism that caused her to act in in ways that I really couldn't stand, and to separate my love for her from my hate for the way she acted and the way that the disease of alcoholism was affecting her. And I got there... It was a slow process. One of the things that I did that really helped me was to listen to other alcoholics tell their story. Mostly I did that by attending uh, open AA speaker meetings. There's uh, several good ones in, in my area, and and I can go there and I can hear an alcoholic tell their story, tell what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And I could start to understand that this disease of alcoholism, this disease of addiction, had affected all of these different people in pretty much the same way. The arc of the story was pretty much the same for all of them, no matter where they started, no matter where they came from, no matter where they ended up or how, and how they got there. Um, this story of, of alcohol or drugs taking over their life until that was the only thing that mattered. And for some people, that took them very deep, and for other people, not so much. I could see that that this was what was happening to my loved one, and to understand, to understand not just in my head, but to begin to understand in my heart that this was not her choice. 
that this was not something she was doing to piss me off, that this was something that had control of her, and that because alcoholism is a a disease of the mind and the spirit as well as a disease of the body, because of that, this disease actually works against treatment. And I understand this to be true of some other mental illnesses as well, that that the illness itself puts a person in a state where they either don't want to seek treatment or they feel themselves unable to seek treatment. I have a, a cousin who's a schizophrenic and who does respond well to medication, but doesn't like the way the medication makes him feel. And in consequence, ended up for some portion of his life, you know, sleeping in a cardboard box because he was not able to function in society and his illness made him not want to do the thing that would that would treat the illness. It's a, it's a horrible paradox that that the disease works against the treatment of the disease. And I and I firmly believe this is true of alcoholism. And and coming to understand that and to have empathy and compassion for my loved one's struggle really helped me to to make that separation. To to love the person that was buried inside the disease while still being unhappy, uh, hating the, the consequences of the disease and, and the way in which it played out in our life. And coming to that place meant that I, I could stay in relationship, that I could be with her in her disease without putting myself in a bad place emotionally and spiritually, that I could have serenity, that I could have happiness even while the disease was, was taking its course with her. And, you know, that disease took her to a place where I didn't know if it was going to take her all the way to death or not. Finding that detachment with love really enabled me to stay there and, and to be with her as this was going on. There was pain, clearly. You know, I wasn't happy. I, was, I, I had fear, but I also had hope and I had love. And I was there when, when she said, I don't want to drink anymore today. And I don't want to drink tomorrow. And that was over 10 years ago now. But you know, the the alcoholism had done damage. The way in which it affected my love for my wife had done damage. I don't think that my love for her will be what it was. Maybe it's healthier now. It's not as intense. And of course, that's just something that happens with time in general. But I think there's still a little bit, as I said in the intimacy talk last week, right? There's still a little bit of a wall that prevents me from completely opening up to, I think, the love that's possible in our relationship. I know for some of us, and definitely have heard this in in the rooms around the tables, that our love for an alcoholic can can keep us in pain in a painful relationship. That maybe there are times when it would be better for us to leave. And we don't. And in fact, I had a a voice message this week from a member who is struggling with exactly that, that she decided to cut ties with, she said, one of of her qualifiers, one of the alcoholics or addicts in her life. But that she is really mourning the loss of that relationship. You know, that happens. It certainly happens just because we know that being in relationship with somebody is not healthy for us. Doesn't mean we wish we could, it could be a different way. Doesn't mean we are grieving for the things that were there. Speaking from my own experience, that that never for me goes away completely. 
I can still look back to happy times and, and grieve the loss of those times. I can look back to love that was and grieve the loss of that love. It does diminish. You know, having a place where I can open up about it, where I can talk about it, instead of holding it inside, instead of stuffing it down, is certainly helpful in that. And whether that place is with a therapist or with a trusted friend or in the, in the rooms of recovery, that has been a boon for me. And being able to keep at least the memory of the love that was and, and, and still be able to love someone from whom I have separated for whatever reason. Whether that reason is me leaving them, them leaving me, or perhaps death, I can hold that, I can hold that grief and that love together. Love in particular in, in the alcoholic relationship. And I think I spoke about this before, but love can turn into control. You know, I love you. So I'm going to make you do what I think is best for you. This is something that I know I did spoken previously of an incident where because I loved her and because I thought she drank too much. I put her in a situation where there was no alcohol available. The consequences of that were unpleasant for both of us. I thought I was acting out of love, but I was acting out of control. I was acting out of a need to to make things be the way that I thought they should be. And, you know, I learned that in that situation, that was not a good thing. And I think in general, when I confuse loving with controlling as it says in the step one reading in our book, How Al-Anon Works, when I confuse loving with controlling, the outcome, whether it's immediate or long-term, is not good for my relationship with my loved one, and, it, and it's generally not good for me. That it just engenders more resentment, more anger, more frustration. You know, I may think I'm acting out of love, but I'm not. I'm acting out of a need to make myself feel better by making my loved one do something that I think will make me feel better. And uh, you know what? often doesn't work for me. I have have a couple of children. They are both, in fact, adult children of an alcoholic. And I think neither of them at this point necessarily identifies themselves in that way. I certainly see characteristics in, in my children that I believe are at least partially a result of growing up with an alcoholic parent in an alcoholic home. And I would really dearly love for them to find recovery like I have. I love them. I want to, I want them to be happy. I want them to have recovery. And they're not there. They're not there. My love at the beginning drove me to force them to go to meetings when they were teens, to Alateen meetings, to bribe them to go to Alateen meetings, and it didn't work. They did not pick it up, and I don't know if it was something in them or if it was, you know, my dad's making me do this and I'm not going to do it, and that's also a possibility. You know, I have conversations with them occasionally where maybe they express something you know, about their feelings for their mother, about the way she acts. And, and I say, you know, um, there is some, there is help available. The, the answer so far has been, I'm not ready for that. I love them. I want them to be well, but they are individual people. And because I love them, I have to let them find their own path. All I can do is express living the program, express the values of the program. And when they ask, say, it's here, it's available for you. Here's, here's a way you could go. My wife has her own program. Because of my time in Al-Anon, I don't try to run her program. I don't try to count her meetings. I don't ask her how she's doing. I don't say, hey, have you met with your sponsor recently? I just, I don't even think about it, which is pretty amazing, really, considering where I came from in trying to control everything. I have faith that she will work her program 
to the extent that she needs to. And, and I can love her for that. And I think one more, one more story illustrating the way in which I was able to use my love for a child to support them in a difficult situation. One of my children, when they were in college, found themselves in a psych ward because of something they had done that the authorities at the college uh, felt illustrated that, that they were a danger to themselves and possibly to others. And so they were in a, a locked ward, one of these places where they give you your toothbrush and then take it away so you don't hurt yourself with it. And they were 2,000 miles away from me, and I felt helpless. I didn't know what to do. They needed somebody to receive them in order to be released from from the psych ward because they had been banned from campus until they could be reevaluated for safety. So they had no place to live. The psychiatric institution uh, did not want to just let them out on the street, which I appreciate. So I flew down, really not knowing what I was going to do beyond receive them out of out of treatment. But what I had learned in the program was that I needed to do only those things for them that they couldn't do for themselves. So one of the things they couldn't do for themselves was to have a place to live while they tried to put their life back together. So I provided that. I've provided a hotel room and they had no transportation. So I provided transportation and they had no way to eat. And so I helped provide food and of course, loving support. And that support meant that when they had to go to the campus police to be interviewed to see if it was safe for them to be admitted back into school. I could drive them there. You know, they, they actually invited me into the meeting. And so I sat there trying to keep my mouth shut while they, they dealt with it. They talked with the counselor and they, while we were in there, a policeman came in and handed my child a restraining order, a personal order of protection from the person to whom they had made a potential threat had been in a relationship with that were next, I guess, an ex relationship. And this person felt threatened and took out a PPO. I sat there while my, my kid received this thing. And my kid said, yes, I can, I can do that. I can, I can abide by this. They had to find a new place to live because they were living in a dorm just down the hall from this person who had taken out a PPO of no contact. And it's really kind of hard to have no contact when you're living just down the hall from somebody. My child talked to friends, found a friend with whom they could spend the last few weeks of the semester. Again, I provided transportation to move their stuff from the dorm room to the friend's place. Then it was time for me to leave. And, you know, my kid, as I was preparing to leave, gave me a hug and said, thank you for being here. I don't know what I would have done without you. And that's because I only did the things that they weren't able to do. They dealt with the situation themselves. And, and in fact, after this, the, the friends with whom they were going to move in the following year, one of them said, you know, I don't feel safe with you living with me. And so my kid had to find a, another place to live the next year. And they did that all on their own. And I didn't have to do it for them. And that, that feels really good. And, it, and, you know, I love them, but I want them to be able to live independently. And they showed that they could. I couldn't have done that without recovery. I couldn't have done that without learning in Alan on how to detach with love, how to not enable, but how to be there for the people that I love in the ways that I can be there, in the ways that are supportive, but not, not controlling or enabling. Finally, I wanted to just look briefly at the suggested Alan on closing, which says something like, I don't have the book in front of me, although you may not like of it, all of us, you'll 
come to love us in a very special way, the same way we already love you. And what does that word love mean in that context? How do we love each other in the program? And for me, that that comes in, in a number of different ways. It comes in identifying with you, that we have been in similar situations, that feeling that I felt in my very first meeting, that everybody in the room understood what was going on in my life and didn't judge me for it. That's one way in which we love each other. We have compassion, we have empathy, and we don't judge, we don't shame. We want you to be better, okay, you know? And there's, there's that, where that line comes in between love and control. In the program, we can love you until you can love yourself. We can love you and hold you in that love and share with you our own experience, our own strength, our own hope, so that you can find your path to recovery. I think that's the way that goes. You know, I do feel that every time a new person comes into a meeting, that feeling of empathy and compassion that is a form of love. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings. The first musical selection that I chose for this episode, um, and you can listen to it on the website at therecoveryshow.com slash 142, by Kendrick Lamar. The title is You. It's just a lowercase u. It's a tough song to get into. Um, there's some, there's definitely some explicit language in there. So again, if that's not you, you may want to skip listening to it. I feel like this is a song that really exemplifies a love-hate relationship. It starts out with a, a hook, loving you is complicated, repeated. And then uh, the first verse, and I, you know, I really had trouble picking, picking excerpts because they all just sit right on that boundary of love and hate. But the first verse starts, I place blame when you still place shame when you still feel like you ain't shit, feel like you don't feel confidence in yourself. And so here we see him expressing his love for this person in the pain that he feels when they're not who they could be when they're putting themselves down and it gets worse. I'll just say that, but it's it's a powerful song. If if you uh, if you don't mind some f bombs and some n words, uh, or if you can get past them to the meat of the song, I do recommend it. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, what's happening in our meetings and our lives this week. And I think I'm going to go from recent backwards. Today, I was listening to an open talk. Actually, it was a a pair of open talks together uh, from an NA convention. And I will put a link to this. It's from the the website is, I think, Recovery Radio People or something. Anyway, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, And it was a couple guys talking first about the God of our understanding and and I really liked the way this guy talked about how we each find our own higher power. And he didn't really talk about his higher power, but he talked about the journey to finding a higher power and expressed it, I thought expressed it really well, but also very personally. And then the second speaker spoke a little bit on the fourth step, but talked really about how having done steps two and three in particular, the higher power steps, made it possible for him 
to take that inventory in step four, to uh, to take that look at himself because he knew that that he was supported by his higher power in doing that. I, I recommend it. Uh, like I said, I'll put a link in the show notes. So yesterday, I'm recording this on Monday, actually. I picked the topic because yesterday was Valentine's Day, and so everybody's thinking about love, right? You know, pink hearts and chocolates, right? So yesterday, I did not make it to my Sunday evening meeting because I was having dinner with my wife, uh, who had to work yesterday and didn't get off work till 5 o'clock, and then we couldn't get a dinner reservation till 8, and so that's like right in the middle of my meeting time. But we went out, we had a very nice dinner together, Some nice time together, just being with each other, doing stuff, eating dinner, talking, watching a couple of our shows. These are the things that keep that, keep that love alive. And for me, uh, continue to build, rebuild the connection between us that, that was so broken by the alcoholism. I had my, my medical step, step five, I guess, uh, Friday morning. I guess you could call it that. I had my annual physical exam. Was able to be open with my doctor about what's going on, about both the positive and the negative. I shared that I had been watching what I ate and exercising and and had lost a significant amount of weight in consequence. We looked at some of my blood numbers, which are still above where they should be. And I said, I said, you know what I would like to do? I would like to come back in six months and get the blood test done so that I can see whether what I'm doing with exercise and, and eating. And also, I was open with her for really the first time about how much I drink. That in particular, over the last couple of years where my work had been really intense and stressful, that my drinking had ramped up to a level that I was not comfortable with. And that I thought and hoped, <laughs> hoped that uh, in consequence, that's why some of my blood sugar numbers were, were higher than normal. And that I made a commitment to myself to drink less. So coming back in six months to see if you know, the A1C blood sugar number had come down. And, and she thought that was sounded like a good plan. And scheduled some scheduled a blood test for me for August. So that we can see, see if I'm making progress. And if not, then we can talk about what I need to do. Again, working the program of recovery, I think, really helped me in being honest with her about you know, what I was doing and where I had been and, and where I would like to be. But, you know, knowing that I may not get there by my own efforts and we may have to do something else and I have to be okay with that. So, yeah, sort of step four, step five with my doctor. Another um, podcast or listening recommendation. I was listening to On Being and she was speaking with a neurosurgeon, James Doty. What struck me, recovery-wise, at least from their conversation, was, I'm going to read a little bit from the transcript. It says, I think for many people, it brings them to a place of being spiritual is actually deprivation and suffering. And one of the challenges for me, which made it more difficult, was that I was self-aware enough as a child that I couldn't understand how people could be suffering and individuals not intervening, or even how I could be in a situation where I was suffering or my family was suffering, and there didn't seem to be a way out. And he did grow up in an alcoholic home, which definitely connects. And he encountered he encountered a woman in a magic shop who said, magic works because people are so easily distracted. So most people who are watching a magic show aren't really there watching the magic show. They're regretting something they did yesterday or worrying about something that might happen tomorrow. So they're not really at the magic show to begin with. 
he says, there was a study that showed that the average person, almost 80% of the time, they're not focused on the present. They're focused on regret about the past or anxiety about the future. And when your attention is in those places, you can't give your full attention to what's happening to you at that moment. And it limits what you can accomplish. It limits the connections we're able to make and even actually even who we are. And it's the techniques that she taught me and my own experience since then have shown me the difference because it's like suddenly you realize that you've been wearing glasses that have been fogged up. And you take them off and there's a vibrancy. The colors are different. The interaction is different. And that's what being present offers you. And he realized that he was able to to change the way he saw the world. And in changing the way he saw the world, he was then able to find a way out of the situation he was in. And I just thought that was a really... Um, an interesting message, and and it ties back for me to this thing in in Elanon where we talk about attitude of gratitude. We talk about the way in which having a different attitude can actually, um, you know, change the way in which you live. And this is another approach to that that same concept. Anyway, I would say, I would recommend listening to this uh, this episode of On Being, which I will also make a link in the show notes at therecoveryshow.com slash one hundred forty two. Upcoming topics, um, we've been talking about doing an episode on recovery and divorce. I've got some contribution, and I'm reaching out to some of the people who said they would like to contribute. We'll hope to put that together in the next couple of weeks. Also, I want to do a series of episodes about the gifts of Al-Anon, and I haven't been able to get that quite off to a start yet. The first one that I wanted to talk about is we will become mature, responsible individuals with a great capacity for joy, fulfillment, and wonder. Though we may never be perfect, continued spiritual progress will reveal to us our enormous potential. If you would like to contribute to this conversation, to this episode, think about questions like, how do you see this gift appearing in your life? If you really look, is it is it starting to come true? Has it come true? Is it is it fully active in your life? Uh, please share with us your experience, strength, and hope on this topic, on recovery and divorce, or on any of the other uh, topics that you might like to hear about. You can call and leave a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now, 734-707-8795. We have a voicemail button on the website. The easiest way to find that if you're on your phone is to go to our contact page at com slash contact or tap on contact in the, the menu at the top of the page. You can leave a voicemail from your computer using the voicemail button on the website or in the contact page. And if you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at com. And again, that contact page, therecoveryshow.com slash contact has information uh, about all the ways you can contribute your voice to our conversation, whether it's your literal voice or your figurative voice in an email. And our website, which is therecoveryshow.com, has all the information that hopefully that you need about the show, which has notes for each episode, occasional blog links to the music we talk about, links to other things we talk about in episodes, and to other recovery podcasts and websites. I take a short break before looking at the mailbag. Our second musical selection is the song Julia by the Beatles. And this is this is a love song that John Lennon wrote to his mother who had died when he was young. And he's talking directly to her as if she's there. He says, half of what I say is meaningless, but I say it just to reach you, Julia. Julia, 
Ocean Child calls me, so I sing a song of love. Julia. Julia, seashell eyes, windy smile, calls me, so I sing a song of love. Sarah left a voicemail. There was a lot of background noise, and it was a little hard to to understand, so I won't actually be playing it, but she mentioned um, our episodes on gratitude, and particularly episode 82, titled Suffering is Optional, when we talked about pain is inevitable and suffering is optional, and she'd chosen to separate from one of her qualifiers and is mourning that loss, and she asked this question, how do I know what I'm creating and, and what's normal? Uh, and that's, you know, that's that's a question I think that a lot of us struggle with when, when we're in a painful situation, you know, how much of this pain am I creating and how much of this is just pain that, that I need to feel because it's there. Um, how much of this is to put it in another way, how much of this is suffering and how much of this is pain where the, the suffering is allegedly optional. If we, if we learn how to move through it uh, and not create it, I guess that's the thing, right? So how much, how much of this am I creating and how much of this is just, what it is. We also did a show, um, which is number 76 about loss, uh, that might be helpful. Um, and there was a recent proposal and I think I had at least one second of that proposal uh, of grief as a topic. And so that, that's another potential upcoming topic. Uh, and if you'd like to contribute your experience of being in grief, getting through grief, Lessening the pain of grief uh, for that episode, please, please do. You know, call us, email us, uh, share your voice. Maybe we can find something in our own experience that Sarah can use in in hers. Directly to Sarah's question, I'm going to suggest that you know, talking with a sponsor or another Al-Anon friend might be helpful uh, to help you see which is real and and which is created. Definitely, I find that when I get somebody else's perspective on what's going on in my life, it it helps me to uh, to see what is something I'm essentially making up in my head and and what's real out there, and maybe maybe also how to move forward. Okay, we have we do have a voicemail from Patty. Hey, Spencer and everybody, it's Patty in Colorado, and. I have an idea for an episode um, topic, maybe, which is something I'd like to um, hear more about, and that is Al-Anon friendships. Um, I'm sure you've talked about it um, a lot here and there, but I I have questions like, I mean, I don't have Al-Anon friendships yet. I'm new to the program, but I really want to, and I live in a very small town, and so, like, say I'm going to call this person up today <laughs> um, who who I have her phone number from a meeting. My first instinct, you know, talking to someone new on the phone is to ask, oh, you know, so what do they do for a living? And are they married? Do they have kids? Where do they live? You know, all of this stuff, which I think I'm not really supposed to ask because of anonymity, or at least there's sort of a... A damper on that. So I'm confused just about that part, like just how to get to know someone on the phone, you know, outside of a meeting. 
without messing up the anonymity thing. This is one question I have, but I'm just really interested in this thing of Alma and friendships and um, to know more about it, how to do it, how to make it work for both people's program. So thanks for everything you do. I look forward to listening right now. Bye-bye. Thanks, Patty. That's you know, some really good questions there. And on the anonymity thing, what the tradition actually says is that we protect anonymity at the level of press, radio, TV, films, and I guess these days the internet, although that word hasn't been added to the tradition. It doesn't say that between individuals we have to be totally anonymous. The tradition of anonymity in the program, I think, encourages each of us to protect our own anonymity to the level that we feel we need to protect it and to not break other people's anonymity to some third party. But it doesn't mean that we can't get to know people, that we can't share experiences together, that we can't get to know their family. It just says that that, that we are in charge of our own anonymity. We are in charge of how much we want to share or not share as long as we're not sharing things about other people that, that they don't want to have shared. But it is tricky establishing that connection. What do you do when you call somebody up? Say, hey, I'm Patty from the meeting, whatever meeting. You know, I would say, hey, this is Spencer from the Sunday night meeting or whatever meeting that I might have met the person in. Maybe have, you know, have a topic that you'd like to, to maybe talk about with this person to, to open the conversation. I, you know, I don't know for you, it might be easier to, to meet in a neutral location. It might be less uncomfortable sitting face-to-face, or it might be more uncomfortable sitting face-to-face, but you know, meeting at a coffee shop with, has very little um, commitment, right? You buy a cup of coffee or tea or something, and, and you can sit there and talk. And that way, neither of you is exposing any more of your life to the other person than you want to. It's It's really interesting how things have worked. And for me in the program with, with Alan on Friendships, that I have people who I know intimate details about their feelings, about their fears, about the alcoholic situation that they found themselves in. But I might not know what they do for a job. I might not know where they live. I might not know what their children's names are, or maybe even if they have children. You know, I have people I sponsor. I've never been to their house. I don't know where they work. And that's okay. It's a different kind of a friendship. And it's a friendship that really is built more on who we are than what we do. And I feel like so many of my friendships outside of the program are more about what we do, that we have a common interest or, you know, we're both parents of children who go to school together, something like that. And not getting to know those people intimately, not getting to know what really makes them tick, how they really feel. Yeah, it can be weird talking about these difficult topics with somebody that you don't have that that background knowledge but i've found that it actually works if if i was going to if i was going to say one thing you know how do you how do you start this is is maybe open it with um, a conversation about uh, a recovery topic maybe something you have questions about got an email here hi i just wanted to say how much i value your podcasts i listen to them daily especially enjoy listening to them on walks They provide me with so much experience, strength, and hope at a very dark time in my life. Please keep up the wonderful work. 
I also wanted to point out that I couldn't comment on a podcast because, quote, CAPTCHA time expired. But I took no time at all, so that may need fixing. I was using Chrome and Windows 7. With much gratitude, a UK fan. There's sort of two parts to that. The first part is I just say thank you, and I am certainly planning on keeping up the work. Um, I'm glad to know that they help. To the second part, I have had this, I've seen this problem before. I thought I had it fixed. Um, apparently it's not completely fixed. It's, if I want to get techy about it, um, it's an interaction between the CAPTCHA software, which is this thing that says, what is 60 minus 10, right down the answer here, and, and to prove that you're human instead of a robot. It's an interaction between that software and software that I use to make the website respond more quickly when people visit it. So I have, again, changed some settings in hopes that that change will fix this problem. But if you do encounter it, please let me know and I'll figure something else out. I had unfortunately had to put the CAPTCHA on there and I really would rather not have it there. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, I was getting totally uh, spammed by some Chinese computers. And I say Chinese computers because I tracked the internet address to China. Um, they were trying to make comments on the website, promoting topics. And, and I have filtering software that automatically detects those comments and drops them in a spam box and you, and you never see them. And But the thing was, I didn't see that it was happening either. And it actually got to the point of in the month of December, I think it was 2013, I got 4 million of these spam comments and my internet service provider shut me down because I was creating too much load on that server and was causing other websites to be slow. So I had to, at that point, move to more expensive hosting, which, you know, not necessarily a bad thing. I basically have a whole computer to myself now. But in order to keep these these robots out, um, I put in the CAPTCHA because I really don't want that to happen again. It's one of those trade-offs that we have to make sometimes. Uh, if anybody out there is like, you know, WordPress maven and knows a better way to do this, I'd love to hear from you. Um, this is what I found that I thought, made a balance between sort of annoyance and and keeping out the bad guys. But I would love to find a better way to do that. Our friend Pat left an email about the uh, the show titled We. Morning, Spencer. This is Pat on the West Coast. And just wanted to tell you how really wonderful the We show was. It, oh, it just filled my heart with warmth and joy. And I thought if ever I would want a newcomer to listen to a program, that would be right up there in the top ten. And I've kept it on my iPhone so that if I'm ever having a down day, I can go to that one and listen to it. It was just so full and all-encompassing and positive and really felt for me exactly what the program's all about. Uh, so thank you so very much for that. It was it was a real gift as all our all your podcasts. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks, Pat. Um, well, I'm I'm glad to hear that it it touched you so strongly. It was an episode that I really enjoyed doing, and it's something that I've been thinking about for a while. And I guess that came through. Maybe after a, a few weeks go by and it falls off the front page of the website, I'll stick it in the favorite episodes uh, in the sidebar. Got another email. Hi, Spencer and friends. 
I really enjoyed listening to the intimacy episode of your podcast, as this has been a really tough area with my alcoholic husband. It's a relief to hear this talked about, both generally and referencing infidelity. I think that sharing about this in meetings is hard, because many meetings encourage people to limit their shares to the alcoholism, and it's not always clear for some of us if infidelity is part of the alcoholism or stems from an addiction of its own. So I've actively sought not to share in this area, and I wonder if others have sometimes felt a little silenced or confused as to how to share appropriately. I hope there will be more conversations on this topic. Rebuilding trust as my husband tries to stop drinking is extraordinarily hard, and my mistrust and jealousy can trigger arguments that push him to want to escape through alcohol. Exhausting. Anyway, thanks again, and please keep sharing. The podcast goes into a lot more depth than my meetings, so it's a great way to explore different angles of many issues. Take care, Gretchen. And uh, and thank you, Gretchen, for that email. And I think we agreed in, in the episode that this is a topic that, that intimacy is a topic that is not discussed a lot in meetings from whatever aspect, whether it's positive or negative, that it it is something that's really greatly affected by uh, alcoholism and addiction, and that maybe by sharing our own experience in this way, we can encourage other people to open up. So thanks. Got a voicemail from Karen. Hi, my name is Karen. I just have discovered your recovery show um, just last week. I think it's awesome. I'd like to contribute in uh, a phone uh, podcast if possible. I've been in Al-Anon for seven years and also AA for 22 years. Again, I just discovered your podcast. I think it's really awesome, and I'd like to be a part of it. If you will, reach back out to me. This is my uh, first time making this type of a call. I don't know exactly how it works, but um, I do know how the program works. So thank you so very much, and I do hope to hear from you. Thank you, Karen, for that, that offer. And so, you know, I get these offers from people, and I say, yeah, I'll call you. And then I don't, you know, it's actually hard for me to pick up the phone and call. Um, I'm much better with email. But what I started uh, this week is I'm making a spreadsheet of the people who called or emailed and said, I would love to contribute to a show so that I have a place I can go look when I'm like, oh, yeah, somebody, ah, man, somebody offered to do some stuff with it, and I can't remember who, and I have to go. And, and, and so... Uh, hopefully this will move me forward to to actually calling some of you who have who have made these offers to participate in and get your voice into the show because I just so love it to have other voices, um, other points of view. I feel it it really enhances what we're doing here. So thanks for the thanks for that offer, Karen. And our our last email for this week is from Roberta who writes, even though I have been in Al-Anon since 2011 and working my program with a sponsor since 2013, plus going to two Al-Anon and one open AA meetings a week and one retreat a year, I still find understanding the program and applying the tools to my life so hard. Thank you for this wonderful show. It has sustained me. You really saved me while I was away and not able to get to more meetings. And you have helped me understand what I'm not clear about. Heartfelt thanks. Thank you, Roberta. That's exactly why we're here. Finally, I got um, an iTunes review from Lucy in the UK titled, So Helpful. 
Lucy writes, I've been in Al-Anon for two years, and I love to listen to these podcasts on the way to work. It's my meeting between meetings. I'm very grateful to Spencer and the team for their hard work. Thank you for helping me work a better program. iTunes reviews and ratings help to make us easier to find by those who are seeking recovery. I also get an email um, a while back from someone who has a podcast called Reckonings, which she describes as a new podcast featuring stories from the conscience. I invite cops, business leaders, veterans, and others to reckon with things that sit heavy on their conscience and openly share their stories. And there's a recent episode featuring Paige Sargent, a singer and songwriter who struggled with alcohol and cocaine addiction. She makes herself courageously vulnerable, sharing the vast destructiveness of her addiction and her deep recovery process through AA and into other forms of healing. It's a powerful and moving story. I finally uh, listened to that uh, this weekend, and it is, uh, as it says, a powerful and moving story. And it also, Paige talks about something that we don't hear a lot about, I think, in our meetings, which is she found recovery starting in AA, but moving into a different spiritual practice, which sustains her in her recovery. And I think that maybe sometimes we feel like, well, the only way to recovery is AA, and I know that's not true. What I do know is that that alcoholism is a spiritual disease and that it needs a spiritual solution along with whatever physical solutions that we may find, and that that spiritual solution can come in many different forms. And so I encourage you to go listen to this episode of Reckonings, and maybe you'll find another source of inspiration there. I will make a link to that in the show notes at therecoveryshow.com slash 142. I want to thank Stephanie, who's the host of Reckonings, for bringing it to my attention. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses. They run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Michelle and Roberta did. We've put together a list of recovery-related books. Click on the books link at the top of the page or on the menu at the top of the page. If you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we will receive a small commission. It costs you nothing extra and helps to keep us on the air. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it, whether it's mentioning the podcast to a friend, send them to therecoveryshow.com, or just listening to us. We are here for you. And the last song selection uh, is is a hymn that we sang this Sunday in church. The title is What Wondrous Love Is This? And the, the version that we sing is a little different from the traditional version. It um, has the uh, references to Christ and to Jesus replaced with other language. I was unable to find that version on the on the web, so I'm going to read the words as we sang them. Uh, I will make a link to a very nicely sung version of the, the original hymn on the website. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul, O oh my soul. What wondrous love is this that brings my heart such bliss and takes away the pain of my soul? When I was sinking down, sinking down, when I was sinking down beneath my sorrow's ground, friends to me gathered round, O my soul. To love and to all friends I will sing, I will sing. To love and to all friends who pain and sorrow mend, with thanks unto the end, I will sing. I, I picked this song because I thought it just really expresses the the love that we feel for each other in recovery. 
the love, that unconditional, unromantic love of the Spirit that we find in our recovery program. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time. Thank mm-hmm. you.